Hey, welcome to Cross Creek On Demand. We are so glad you are here. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor. We created Cross Creek to be a church for people who don't normally go to church. And so we've designed our Sunday environment, including our online environment, to be a safe place where people can discover God's love for them. We would love to connect with you when you are ready. Go ahead and scroll down and you can click ask a question, ask for prayer. Maybe you could find out how you could get here on a Sunday evening to join us live. But we would love just to be a part of your journey in discovering God's love. When you're ready, we would love to see you in person. Until then, why don't you go ahead and click subscribe so you can be updated on Cross Creek's most recent messages. Thanks for joining us. Well, hello again. Welcome to Cross Creek, if you were able to kind of sneak in during that last song. We're not judging you. We're just glad you're here. Hey, and we're glad if you're watching online, wherever and whenever you are. Thank you so much for being a part of um, our online campus. So we are in part three of a series we are calling uh, Discovering God. And so in the first part, we basically talked about how from the very beginning of time, God, is for, God was for us. He created everything perfectly for us. When he was done creating the stars, when he was done creating uh, the plants and the animals, he said, this is good. And it wasn't like he was checking his work and be like, oh, phew, I'm so glad I didn't mess up, right, with that kangaroo thing, how that worked out, I don't know. It wasn't like he was saying, you know, oh, oh, good, you know, that, okay, good, I'm so glad that worked out. It's, he's saying that's good for the people I'm going to create. That's good for humanity. He created everything good for us. He was for us from the beginning of time. And then sin entered the equation and kind of ruined everything. And then last week, we talked about how peace with God really is not that complicated. We, we try to put so much on this idea of making peace with God. We feel like we have to do these rituals. We have to follow these rules. We have to give so much money. But in reality, it's not that complicated. It comes from one single act of trust. And we saw that uh, as we looked through the life of Abraham. And you know, that sounds good. That sounds nice. And that makes you feel all warm and gooey inside, right? That God is for you. God loves you. Before you were even born, God had a plan for you. And he was for you. Those are all true things. But then we, you know, as you're on your trek of discovering God and what he's like, maybe you, you know, you, you search online for what other people have said about God, what other people think about God, and you, you come across stuff like maybe you've heard of uh, the Battle of Jericho. If you grew up in church, maybe you heard of the Battle of Jericho. Maybe you haven't heard of this battle. But there's, there's like a little kid's song that goes with it, right? Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, 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 right? A little kid's song, the, the little, little tykes. I've never used that word in my life. <laughs> but the little ones sing in their Sunday schools, right? And, and the grandmas in the nursery sing it with them and stuff. That's a terrible song for kids. Do you know why? Because this is the Battle of Jericho. This is the Battle of Jericho. There you go. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. This is in the Bible, by the way. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city, the end. That's where it ends in Sunday school. This is what actually happened. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. 
This is hand-to-hand fighting, slaughtering an entire culture, slaughtering an entire city. Aren't you glad that your kids sing songs about it? Unbelievable carnage, unbelievable brutality in the name of God. How do we balance the God that we've been talking about, how he's for you from the beginning of time, how peace with him is not that complicated? How do we balance that with a God that would be a part of this? I mean, that doesn't sound very loving, does it? I mean, it's one of the reasons many people reject the God of the Bible, and I don't blame them. Maybe that's where you've, you've been, where you are. Maybe, you, you know, you're checking it out online. You know, I hear this thing about Jesus, but Jesus said he was that God that ordered that destruction. I mean, it le- honestly, it leaves me and anyone who says God is love with a lot of explaining to do, because we can't just ignore that part. And I'm not going to insult your intelligence by just giving you a quick answer and saying, oh, yeah, 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 it's that, and then trying to move on. Because there's really no quick answer. There's no easy answer to how we, how, we, how we balance that. In fact, it's a very uncomfortable and a very real tension. But here's the thing. Discovering God is not always a comfortable experience. Often it is, but as you dig deeper, things like this start coming up. You start discovering things that maybe you almost feel like, like this is a, a side of God that he's been trying to hide, and then all of a sudden you, you, know, you open the door and, oh, that's who you really are, right? It's this very uncomfortable experience. Here's the thing. The God who was and is for you and for all of humanity is also a God that can be terrifying. He's a God who hates evil but loves people. There's this tension. He's a God who judges, but at the very same time, he's a God who forgives. So as we're discovering God in these six weeks, here's what we're discovering, that God is loving and he judges sin. God is loving, and at the exact same time, he fully judges sin. And so what do we do with this? It's not like I could just leave right now and be like, hey, enjoy that tension. Or if you're, if you're just reading that and you're like, oh, well, how do I? We, here's the thing. We need to get the whole picture. We need to kind of dig deeper into this, into this idea, into this story. In fact, we need to do some, some background work, I think. And like I said, in the beginning, God created everything Perfect. It was perfect for you. It was perfect for me. There was, there was a perfect relationship between humanity and God. There was a perfect relationship between humanity and themselves, right? The first man and the first woman had, perfect, had a perfect relationship. No shame, no embarrassment, no weird tape sticking out of your shoe. A perfect relationship. Everything was perfect. No shame, no judgmental people, no, no awkward in-law situations, none of that. And then humanity thought they knew better than God. They thought, you know what? Maybe God can't be trusted. And so they rebelled and everything fell apart. Sin entered the world and now death entered through sin. The consequence of, of sin is death and shame. And then 650 years before this battle of Jericho, 
God made a promise to an old man named Abraham. And God told Abraham, you are going to be a fa- the father of a great nation. You're going to have so many descendants, you won't even be able to count them. So he made a promise. You'll be a father of a great nation. You will be blessed by God. By the way, Abraham did nothing to deserve this, to earn this. He didn't even ask for it. And not only would he be blessed by God, not only would he be the father of a great nation, out of his descendants would come the one to fix this mess of sin. The one who would, who would who'd right all the wrongs, who would say, you know what, that relationship between God and humans that has, been, that has been messed up, that has been destroyed, he is going to come and fix it. And he's going to be your descendant. So Abraham had a son, and he had a son, and he had a son, and they had sons and sons and sons and sons. And these descendants, they're named, they're called Israelites after Abraham's grandson, who was Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. God said these descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. Maybe you've heard of it called the promised land. The holy land. Because it's called the promised land because it's promised by God to Abraham. But here's the thing. God said they're going to inherit it, but it's not going to be quick and it's not going to be easy. In fact, this is what God says. Then the Lord said to him, to Abraham, Know for certain that, 400, that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they, afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure." And so this is what happens. Abraham's descendants end up moving to Egypt. There's a famine in their land. They move to Egypt and they settle there and they grow and they grow and they grow until the Egyptians are like, holy cow, we have all these Israelites living in our land. If they keep growing like this, they're going to take over all of Egypt. And so he enslaved them. He said, you are now slaves. For 300 years, they were slaves. And then maybe you've seen the movie, right? The, uh, the movie of Moses. The Ten Commandments, or Prince of Egypt, which is the animated version, which is not as long and not as epic. So God sends Moses to deliver the Israelites and give them the law, not just the Ten Commandments, but hundreds of commandments that wouldn't just create a family, but create a nation, a nation chosen by God to bring in the promised one that would, that would rescue all of humanity. And when Moses' time was done, God gave Joshua the task of leading this new nation into the promised land, into the land he had promised them. But there's just one problem. That promised land was not empty. For those more than 300 years, other nations were in that land. They were busy growing, building cities, cultivating the land, and creating their own distinct cultures. So when the Israelites got to the edge of Canaan, named for the promised land, They discovered this huge occupied sign. This land that God had promised their ancestor was now being, was full of other cultures, other nations, walled cities. And so God commands his nation to go conquer and destroy these cultures. Perfectly reasonable, right? No, that's what, I mean, picture it. This is like, this is like Bronze Age, Iron Age warfare. God says, there, you know, there's, there's, there's no medicine. There's no pain reliever. He says, go in and destroy these cities, destroy these cultures, and take by force 
the land I promised you. Right? We, we get the pictures of, of genocide, of things we've seen happening in other countries, of refugees fleeing. But this is different. This was ordered by God. I mean, doesn't that just seem so wrong? Doesn't that just kind of make you be like, who would even say that was okay? Maybe a bit more detail would help. See, in God's promise to Abraham, there was this sentence that we read. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. See, these cultures that grew up in the promised land, they were not, you know, happy, sing songs with each other, braid each other's hair. Cultures. They were barbaric cultures. Little regard for human life. Little regard for human dignity. Child sacrifice was a normal thing. Uh, there was incest. There's institutionalized sexual abuse of women in these cultures. In fact, these cultures were so evil, with the correct definition of that word, so evil that God decided it was best to erase these cultures completely. See, the cultures themselves were unredeemable unfixable, too far gone. The cultures were unredeemable, but not the people. Not the people. The phrase full measure says the, 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 their sin has not reached their full measure yet shows that God was actually giving the people time, giving the people opportunity to change their ways. It says had not yet reached their full measure. Had not yet. God was waiting to judge them. How would they know what they were doing was evil? I don't know. Honestly, I, I, I don't know. But we see elsewhere that in, in these types of situations, God did send people to warn these types of nations. That story of Jonah and the big fish, the reason he was running away from Nineveh was because God wanted to warn Nineveh that he was going to destroy them because of their evil. And Jonah said, no, they're too evil. You should destroy them. And God said, I don't want to. Go warn them. And he said, no. So a fish swallowed them. And there you go. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Now, this, all, this, this destroying of cities may seem cruel, may seem unfair, but I think we should stop for a moment and recognize that it does show something important. 300 years God waited until they finally had just reached, they had just gone too far. They were too, the cultures were too far gone. It shows that God is slow to judge. Yes, he does judge, but he takes his time. He is slow to judge. He doesn't just say, oh, you messed up, you're dead. He gives time. He is patient. Because of what we know about God, what we've been discovering about God, I think it's a very safe assumption that he did warn these cultures. In fact, I think we're going to see some proof of it in a little bit as we, as we go further in this story. But he did warn them, but they chose not to listen. And so God used the nation of Israel to judge these cultures. And the mission God gave the Israelites was not just to occupy this land, but to cleanse it. See, they were to stay completely separate from the other cultures. They weren't supposed to marry into those cultures. They're not supposed to participate in what those other cultures did. They were God's chosen nation. They were supposed to stay separate and not become like the other nations. Now that part right there might hit you too because maybe you grew up in church or in a religion where you were told you on the inside in this club are good. Everyone on the outside is dangerous and evil and you should never ever 
make friends with them. You should never, ever interact with them. So you stay clean, and they stay separate. That was the thinking of the Jewish nation when Jesus was on earth. That's why they were, the leaders were so against him when he actually ate with the people they called sinners. When he actually went to the parties of people that they said, no, we should be separate from them. See, a lot of people have taken this idea of ancient Israel and applied it to their lives today, which doesn't really make sense because the commands were for ancient Israel. Raise your hand if you are part of ancient Israel right now. You're not. So those commands to stay separate, to stay away from other, other cultures and just stay in your own little cloistered unit, it doesn't apply to you. Jesus showed that by embracing people of all kinds. People who many would consider too far gone from God. He said, no, come on, let's hang out. People who were nothing like Jesus loved hanging out with Jesus. What was that about? I don't know, that's a total side note. Here, let's keep going. And so this, this Israelite nation was new. It was fragile, like a newborn baby. And so God took extreme measures to protect his nation, to make sure it got started on the right track. They, they had been in, immersed in Egyptian culture and religion for hundreds of years. So God took these measures to make sure that his nation, which he created to save all of humanity, would survive. So the Israelites entered the promised land. And Joshua, leading the Israelites, sent spies into the land to, to check out the first city that they would, they would come in contact with, that they would have to conquer, and that city was Jericho. So these spies go into Jericho, they go into the city walls, they check things out, and they need a place to stay for the night. And so they go to the house of a lady named Rahab. She was a prostitute. And they hide in her house, and she, and, and she, she helps hide them. But the king of Jericho finds out that the spies are in her house, and he sends men to her house and says, send out the spies, because they are here to conquer us. We need to kill them. And she said, uh, they're not here. They were here. See, every lie needs a little bit of truth to be believable, right? They were here, but they went that way. And the men decided for some reason, they, Jericho men were not the brightest. They said, they took her word for it. And went out the gates and looked for the men all over the countryside, not thinking, hey, maybe we should just go into this lady's house and look for them. They didn't. And so Rahab hid the spies on the roof, and they were safe. Now think about that. Maybe you've heard this story before, and you're like, yeah, 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 it's a great story. You know, Josh and Bell, Jericho, the walls came tumbling down. But why would Rahab do that? Why would this lady who, is, who grew up from birth in this culture with her, her you know, she went, she, they didn't go to school, but she grew up with these people. She had friends in this town. She had neighbors. And she knew these spies had come to spy on her people so that their army could destroy the city. Why would she hide them? Why wouldn't she turn them in and save all of her people and be this hero? Well, she says, why? Right here. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, this the battle that the Israelites fought, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. 
When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. See, the Canaanites somehow had heard, God's of, had heard of God's promise to Abraham. In some way, they had been warned. As we talked about earlier, they understood why the Israelites were there. They were there to take possession of the land God had promised them. They had heard of the miracles and the victories God had given them, and they were terrified. But Rahab chose to respond differently than her countrymen, differently than the rest of her people. So here's the thing, we always have a choice. We always have a choice of how we will respond. In fact, God lets us choose how we will respond to him. Rahab chose to accept that Israel's God was the one true God, that her people and that her culture had missed it, that they had gone the wrong way. And instead of fighting and resisting, she chose to surrender and ask for protection. She goes on talking. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my people because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save them from death. So the spies agree to this deal. And they say, hey, when, when, we, when our army comes, comes, when we surround the city, hang the scarlet rope outside your window, and we'll know that's your house. And everyone in that house will be safe. Anyone who is in Rahab's house will be safe as long as you put that cord out. And so the spies escape. They report back to Joshua. Now it's time to attack the city. And God gave very strange orders to attack Jericho. Again, if you grew up in the church, if you grew up with this story, you're like, yeah, they, they like marched around, right? That sounds so fun. And, and then, you know, in your classroom with your teacher, you all got up and started marching around the classroom. Like, oh, this is so fun. You had no idea what you were doing. You just got to march with your friends. You started pushing, and then you got in trouble and had to sit in the corner because it was back then, and that was still okay, right? And so that's, that's what they do. They march around the city. God says, you need to march around the city for six days. You march around the city once. And then on the seventh day, you're supposed to march around the city seven times, and at the end of the seventh time, blow all your trumpets, shout as loud as you can, and all the walls will come tumbling down, and the city will be yours. That's weird, guys. Like, don't just read the Bible and be like, oh yeah, that's what they did, I remember that. No, why? That doesn't make any, that is not how you did warfare back then, by the way. You would surround the city, cut it off so they had no supplies, poison their water, throw like dead animals in so they get all sick, and then when you finally attack, they'll be all sick and you, you just slaughter them. You don't just do a parade around the city. Don't just read that and say, oh yeah, that's a great idea, Joshua. Why? Why would God command them to do that for seven days? Here's the thing. God was giving the people of Jericho a chance. He was giving them another chance to surrender. He was giving them a whole week to think through this idea. Should we resist this army that we know is from God, that we know have defeated all these nations, that we know there's this living God that, that it fights for them? They had seven days. And on that seventh day, God still gave them more time. Instead of just marching around once and attacking, he said, march around seven times. Make sure they know they have a chance. Think about it. 
No doubt, this story would be very, very different is if maybe on the third day, instead of that one red rope hanging from a window, there were three. On the fourth day, maybe there were ten more. On the fifth day, a few more. On the seventh day, there were hundreds of ropes hanging, red ropes hanging from windows. No doubt this story would be different. No doubt there would not be this slaughter of Jericho. It's, in fact, the spies promised that, that was the deal. As for those who are in the house with you, they say to Rahab, anyone, not just saying, hey, just your family. As for anyone in your house, anyone who takes up this deal and surrenders, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. Anyone who takes up this deal will be safe. They had seven days to make that choice. But they didn't. They chose not to. Unfortunately, the people's fear of God, fear of God's judgment, kept them from enjoying the peace of God's love. Fear makes us do dumb things. Fear makes us fight. Fear makes us defensive. Fear makes us ignore logic. Fear makes us miss God's promise. See, our fear of God's judgment often keeps us from enjoying the peace of God's love. Our fear of God's judgment, oh, God's judgmental, no, I love you. No, 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 remember that thing I did? You're judging me, I can totally feel that. Maybe that's your own guilt. Maybe that's not God. But we push him away. We say, no, 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 you're judgmental. You want nothing to do with me, so I want nothing to do with you. When he's saying, I love you, I'm for you. Our fear of God's judgment often makes us miss the peace of God's love. And so on the seventh day, the army marches around seven times, and they blow their horns, they do their shouts, and the walls come tumbling down, and chaos ensues. They killed every person in the city, every sheep, every donkey, every cow, everything was destroyed. Everything was destroyed except Rahab and her family that were in her house with her. The story goes on a little bit more. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Let's read that last line again. At some point, when, when the writer of the story was writing it, Rahab was still alive. And he says, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. A Canaanite prostitute, one of the least deserving of an undeserving people, because of a single act of trust, becomes a fully accepted member of God's new nation. She made the choice to not resist God's plans, but to accept his gracious offer of mercy and forgiveness. See, we can, we can choose to complain, and we can try to judge God's justice and how he does it, or we can thank him. We can thank him for his mercy, for his love, for his hundreds of chances he's given us. See, our choice makes all the difference. 
But wait, there's more. It gets better. See, in the, in the first chapter of, of Matthew's account of, of Jesus' life, his eyewitness account, he shows that Rahab actually married an Israelite man. Her, her past didn't keep her from finding love, from finding a family. She marries a man named Salmon, and they have a son named Boaz. Just get past the names. They're, it's ancient. They have a son named Boaz who marries another foreign widow named Ruth. There, there's actually a book in the Old Testament called Ruth about that story. Well, Boaz and Ruth have a son named Jesse. Jesse has a bunch of sons, and the youngest one is named David, who becomes the greatest king of Israel. Rahab's great-grandson is King David. But it goes on. See, out of David's descendants came that promise. The whole reason for the Israelite nation was to bring this promised one that God said would come and save all of humanity from the separation of sin. And out of David's descendants comes Jesus, the promised Savior of the world. All through Rahab. Because of her choice to trust God, her entire identity, her entire legacy changed. She was no longer Rahab the prostitute. She was Rahab the mother of kings. The mother of the Savior. And she goes down in history as a huge part of God's plan to rescue all of humanity. It's incredible. But think about it. What, what did Rahab do to earn all of this? To receive this blessing? To have her entire identity, her entire legacy changed? Well, obviously she, you know, they might not say it, but if you read between the lines, she, she cleaned up her act, right? She sacrificed a bunch of animals, and she's probably said a few hundred prayers, and then, you know, she earned it, right? That's how we think. We think to make up for our past, we have to do all these good things. But the problem is, all this good stuff you do does nothing to make up for your past. Your past is still your past. It happened. You can't change it. What did she do? Nothing. One single act of trust. One choice. Choosing to trust that God is who he said he is and will do what he says he will do. See, isn't it interesting that there is nothing in the spies' promise to Rahab about saving her? There's nothing in that promise about changing her lifestyle. Everyone knew what she did for a living. It's her last name. But there's nothing in their promise about saving her, about changing what she did for a living, changing her choices, changing her lifestyle. Her behavior was not a barrier. It wasn't even mentioned. Her past did not disqualify her from receiving God's love. See, under Jewish law, she probably should have been stoned with rocks, not the other kind. But instead, she's fully accepted because she chose to trust God. Now, this is really important. If you fell asleep, if you're on Facebook and you're online, come back. Okay, nudge that guy who's fallen asleep next to you. Because this is important. Her past did not disqualify her from receiving God's love. It's the same with you. 
It's the same with all of us. Your past does not disqualify you from receiving God's love. It doesn't. The only prerequisite there is to receiving God's love is what Rahab did. She acknowledged that God was God and chose to trust him. And because of her choice, her entire life, her entire identity, her entire legacy was changed forever by God. I mean, really, it, it's this, like I said, it's the same with us. Now imagine, imagine on this phone with a sweet Luke Skywalker case. On this phone is recorded everything you've ever done. And you'd be like, John, why have you been doing that? You are a creep. But imagine, right? I have this, I have this phone that has recorded, <coughs> excuse me, recorded everything you've ever done in your life. Everything you've chosen to do. What's on here is how people see you. What's on here is how you see yourself. And, you know, it's, this is your choices. This is you. It's on you. It's how people see you. You feel its weight every day. Maybe you can't put words to it, but you feel this weight every day. And, it's, and maybe every, you know, every January, you say, you know what? This year's, this year's going to be different. I'm going to turn my life around. Right? No, no, no. Okay, that didn't work. Well, this year, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn over a new leaf. Right? It's still on you, isn't it? That weight is still there. It might look a little bit different, but it's still there. And God is saying, I want a relationship with you. But it's, it's keeping you separated. It's keeping you blocked from, from really enjoying God's love, from knowing who he really is, from being able to see yourself the way he sees you. And that's why God made the promise to Adam and Eve. That's why God made the promise to Abraham that one day someone will come. See, you can't do anything to take this off. It's, it's on there. Nothing good you do can erase what's on the camera, can erase what's on the video. It might show some, some good clips, but it's still there. You can still rewind and see it. That's why God said, I am going to send somebody that can remove it, that can die for the penalty of these choices and destroy it and completely remove it from who you are and give you a new identity so that now there is nothing between you and God. There's no separation because Jesus came and died for that penalty and rose again to give you that new life. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of the Jewish nation. That's the whole point of Rahab. He died to clear your story and give you a new one. A story of no judgment, of no fear, because one single act of trust can take away your past and give you a new identity. It's what this, this whole Bible thing is about. It's what this whole church thing is about. You can't turn a page in the Bible without actually seeing this story. I just want to give you three examples. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has chosen to follow Jesus, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out, <clears throat> excuse me, drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love because you're still fearing punishment. See, to God, the change is immediate. 
Like, like when somebody's adopted, right, the judge signs the paper, and boom, you are in the new family. That's how it is with God. To him, the change is immediate. You're now a new, full new member of his family. But here's the thing. It might not always feel immediate. You might make that choice to choose to trust and like, oh, well, I chose that. You know, I feel kind of, maybe I feel happy in my heart, but I still see myself as I used to see myself. Here's the thing. Do you think Rahab felt the change overnight? Do you think she felt that change from Rahab the, the prostitute to Rahab mother of kings that day? Probably not. See, though in God's eyes she was forever and immediately part of God's chosen family, it probably took her a long time to see herself that way. It was probably a process, right? Memories needed to fade. Memories needed to change from shame to thankfulness. Instead of saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. I can't. Instead of that, you say, thank you. Yes, that is who I used to be, but that's not who I am anymore because of you. Thank you for changing me. See, seeing ourselves as God sees us is an ongoing process. We are transforming more and more to be who he actually sees us as. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And if you're ready to accept that new free life God offers you, or maybe you're, you're struggling to, to actually accept that new identity, to accept God's view of you, of seeing yourself as God sees you, here's a prayer I want to I offer you. This is not a magical chant. The actual words don't matter, but I think it's, it's, it's helpful to have a template. It's helpful to have a, a starting point. If you're like, you know, I, I want that new start. I want that new identity. This is a prayer that you can, it's, it's in your program. It'll be in the notes online. Heavenly Father, I believe that your love is more powerful than my past, present, or future. I believe Jesus died to take the judgment and penalty my sin earned me. I believe that you are offering me a new identity to adopt me into your family forever. Today I declare that what you say about me is true. I'm loved, I'm forgiven, and I'm accepted. Teach me to love others like you love me. If that's something you can say, yeah, that's, that's what I want to tell them. That's, that's my prayer to God. Maybe you don't say those words, but if that's something you've never done and for the first time in your life you said, yes, I want to be a Jesus follower. I want that new identity. We want to walk with you in that. We want to be a part of that. That's why we have cards in the seat in front of you or online. You can email us. Just say, yeah, that's a decision I made. Maybe, maybe you've, you've been a Jesus follower, but you've never seen yourself as God sees you. We want to be a part of that too. We want to see that there's walk you through this change of what's, what's going on. So fill out a card. Let us know. But here's the thing. God is both loving and just. I'm going to invite the band up as we, as we close up here. But God is both loving and just. He loves you, but he hates sin. See, that's the thing. People are like, you know, if there really is a God, why would he allow so much evil in the world? Why would he allow so much hurt? Well, if he truly destroyed all evil, all hurt, all pain, who does he have to destroy? Who's the cause of all of that? Humanity. If, he, if you want him to destroy all evil and pain, he has to destroy all of humanity. And so he found a way, he chose a way to destroy the effects of sin 
to destroy the power of sin and yet keep us alive by coming and dying for us, by dying that death for us, by destroying sin for us and raising again to offer us a new life. And you can choose to resist and fear him or you can choose to trust him and live in his love. Because here's the thing. God is slow to judge, slow to judge and quick to rescue and restore. He is slow to judge. He gives us time. But when we ask for it, he rushes in as fast as you can imagine to rescue you and restore you. That's the God we are discovering. Let's stand and sing this song. Actually, stay seated. <laughs> Sit um, and sing this song. So, uh, so this, this uh, song that Gillian's going to sing right now, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very personal song. You could call this song Rahab's song. You could call it Luke's song. You could call it Gillian's song. And it's really your song. If you've ever been in that place where you questioned your worthiness in your relationship with God. And so what I want you to do is just, just sit back and listen to these words, these questions, and relate to those. If you've ever questioned your, your worthiness in your relationship with God, because God has an answer for those questions.
Father, thank you that you're a God who doesn't love to judge. You're a God that loves to rescue. You're a God that loves to restore. You're a God that died to give new identities. Thank you that you love us so much that you were for us before we were born. You were for us before we were for you. You were for us before we even knew about you. Show us how much you love us. Give us the courage to trust you Give us the courage to love like you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, at any time, you're like, you know what? That is, I want that identity. And in your program is, is that prayer we talked about. Again, not a magic chant, but maybe a guide. If there's something you want to talk about today or maybe pray about or ask questions about, uh, Ken is going to be over here at this side and you can talk with him. I didn't prepare him for that, but he's a pro. He's good. He's safe. He's my dad. But uh, talk to him. And um, you know what? We have some food for you downstairs if you are interested in being a part of our uh, side dish Sunday. So please stay and enjoy. If not, you won't be judged. You're free to go. We're not locking the doors. But thanks for being here. I hope you have a great week, and hopefully we'll see you next week.